Welcome back, everybody, to the Sit Down Podcast, community podcast. Uh, this is your host and facilitator, Stephanie Shaw. I am so excited to have you back for this final episode of season one. Hasn't it been so, so good so far? So we just give you all the glory, honor, and praise to God. Um, and we just thank you as listeners for investing in these conversations, not only for us as the ones partaking, but also for yourself. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to let Casey introduce herself. Thanks, Stephanie. And it's such a joy and um, an honor to be able to contribute to the important work that you're doing. So I'm happy to be here, happy to be uh, with all of you listeners So my name is Casey Taylor Short, and uh, the reason I'm here is because Stephanie and I share a passion for kind of integrating psychology and sociology and theology in a way that can come together to meet the needs of our community. Mm. And so it's all about uh, understanding ourselves more, connecting with God more deeply so that we can love and connect with others more deeply. And the way that I kind of went along my route to learn more about these different disciplines was I actually recently just finished my PhD in clinical psychology. Yeah, I'm really grateful. <laughs> it's been a long journey. Uh, so I just graduated and I'm about to start working uh, as a therapist um, in a postdoctoral residency residency position. And so I've been doing therapy for a while now. I'm in a postdoc position currently, um, and hopefully within the next 10 months, we'll be a licensed clinical psychologist. So that's a little bit of my background. um, And the program I happen to go to, it really integrates those two passions I talked about earlier, because I got the great opportunity to train as uh, in within clinical psychology with a PhD, but also get my master's of theology at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. So that's a little bit about my background and education um, and what lights me up. So thanks for having me. Oh, so much wisdom in this space, you guys, it's going to be so good. Um, and I think like, just to know Casey, she and I actually just met a short maybe five months ago or so, but she just, uh, exudes peace, um, which is really important in a culture that doesn't, that loves division and confusion. And so I just challenge those of you listening, find people that, um, bring peace to a room, to a space, to a conversation. Those people are irreplaceable for so many reasons. So, um, we're going to start off, let's talk about, um, just, from a community standpoint, even a developmental one, what does it look like to um, really create a sense of safety and security in our lives? Mm. Maybe let's think about physical safety, emotional safety, spiritual safety. What do you think? Mm. It's such a fully loaded question. I love it. (laughs) Uh, Because we're talking about systems, we're talking about relationships, we're talking about communities. Safety is so multidimensional. It's not just about one area of our life. Um, And because of that, I think like maybe the first example of safety that comes to mind for me is the safety that's created in our homes growing up, or for some of us, the loss of safety we experience in our homes growing up. But that's our first example of really what it feels like to be safe, um, to know what it's like to be in a relationship. For example, like typical safe relationships. Uh, We learn safety if our boundaries are respected. We learn safety if the person is reliable. We learn safety if the person is accountable. 
Um, we learn safety if um, they keep our confidences, if they don't talk behind our back. We learn safety if we share our emotions, if we're vulnerable and they meet us with like comfort, with that like not judgmental embracing stance. And, and we learn all of those things primarily in our family systems first. And then we get the opportunity to learn and practice them outside of our family systems with friends and community members. Um, but safety starts in the relationships we build with our parents, with any other caregivers we may have with our siblings. Um, and that's one of the reasons safety can be so confusing um, mm -hmm. because if our first relationships that were supposed to be safe were not safe, then it can make this idea of safety really complex and difficult to think about as an adult, reflecting yeah. back on maybe what feels familiar isn't always what's actually safe. Mm. But then apart from like the relational safety we build, we also have the practicalities of physical safety. Um, are my needs met? Do I have access to clean food and, and water? Do I have shelter? Um, do I have access to the medical care or help that I may need? Mm. All of these practical pieces of physical safety and the mental representation of, can I be sure I will have what I need when I need it? Because mm. that's a huge piece of safety that I think could apply to anything. Just the idea that I can be confident that I will have what I need, or I can be confident that I can ask someone for what I need and that they're going to help me. Mm. And that happens in our family systems too. Like how often we're able to ask mom or dad for help and they helped us or ask mom and dad for food and they got us food or went to someone crying and they gave us a hug. We learn safety in those moments of vulnerability where we're met with warmth and support. Mm. Um, and then we also have the community aspect of safety too, thinking about um, systemic injustices, our, our experience of our community and the equity that's available in our community is gonna impact how safe we feel in any given space. Mm -hmm. Am I confident that I can walk into a room and be treated as an equal here? Or do I have to go in kind of feeling on edge because there's gonna be an unconscious bias in the way that someone treats me? And that's going to change the way that I enter every room. Same yeah. with like our justice systems or same with the laws that are made. Um, an individual who's experienced consistent discrimination or marginalization in their communities is going to experience safety in those communities in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, so we have this community level of safety that is systemic and broad reaching. We could spend a whole podcast talking about that. We have the interpersonal safety that we build in our relationships, starting with our caregiver relationships. Mm -hmm. And then we also have these aspects of, of physical safety that are so important. Um, mm -hmm. And then there's also the piece of, of spiritual safety, which is nuanced and complex because as we grow older, Sometimes we attach all of the ideas of safety we have based on what we've learned from our communities, what we've learned from our families, what we've learned from our legal systems or the cultural norms. And sometimes we attach all of those ideas of safety to our idea of spiritual safety. Mm. Some of those things can be good. Yeah. And sometimes that can make spiritual safety really confusing. Yeah. Um, and so when we think about spiritual safety, our, our relationship to God, to communities of faith, how we feel uh, safe, healed, restored, comforted in those spaces, mm -hmm. um, you can see how easily it becomes confusing or complex because all of the other pieces of safety can be tied to it. Right. Um, so those are just some of my initial thoughts that come up when you ask that question. It's a really big question. So I'm sure right. that there's maybe 
um, some holes that I've, I've missed in it. I'm curious, like, what are your thoughts about it? Were there, was there anything that came up for you as I was talking or a piece that you yeah. wanted to add to that? Yeah, absolutely. Even on that last, well, let's go first to that relational component of, you know, did I have, uh, you know, a secure attachment to my parents and my sibling? Did I have an anxious one? Did I have avoidant looking at those things now being within um, the social work field? It's, it's funny because I started out as an exercise science major and mm-hmm. felt called into social work. And, and part of me now in this season feels like God really utilized that as a tool of healing for me of mm-hmm. look at your mind. It's not broken. Look at your relationships. There might be brokenness there, but there's also room for healing and reconciliation. Look at how you interact with the community um, and f- constantly feel like you have to compete, not out of being better, but out of figuring out what's safe and not safe. And mm-hmm. um, I think for me, looking at it from that relational standpoint, God is really shifting me into a season where um, it's the competition and the questioning that stuff's mm-hmm. all getting removed so that true trust and safety can be formed. Um, which is really neat of God just calling you out, calling me out and just saying the way you're doing things, isn't going to work tomorrow. In fact, it's not even going to work today. Not going to work tomorrow. Not going to work six months from now, not going to work two decades from now. And really being able to utilize my understanding of connection and relationship. And even the ways that was very much uh, disrupted because of disappointments or, um, feeling like I didn't know what my own needs were. So I expected my parents to know, but no Mm -hmm. one was saying anything. No one was asking any questions. And so that sense of safety really got disrupted for me Mm -hmm. at certain points growing up before I went to college and then really navigating what does it look like to in a healthy healthy, really multiple avenues to work through that, to process Mm -hmm. through it in counseling, to Mm -hmm. process through it in safe community. Because for a long time, even when I was in Detroit and Dallas for three years, it was, well, that person's unsafe to me. And I was like, well, why were they unsafe? Mm -hmm. Like making sure I didn't just say, oh, that was unsafe to avoid processing and working through it and healing Mm -hmm. from it. Um, because I would say I hurt quite a few people leaving a friendship because I didn't have the toolkit, um, to really understand where I was letting conflict and just typical growing pains of relationship Mm -hmm. growth. I was just saying, well, they're unsafe or they're not supposed to be in my life or this and that. And then they would be like, we got an argument. What's happening? Why, why are we not friends anymore? And so being able to see my immaturity in handling conflict and using unsafe as an excuse, not to like work at the things that were actually safe. They were just pushing me in an uncomfortable way. They were difficult. Yeah. Very difficult. And it's like, Oh, this is really just a human experience of having to get uncomfortable with the realities of when we're actually probably to blame, or we've created things in our minds to feel some sense of security Mm. that was probably built on, you know, the shifting sand versus the rock. And then from a spiritual standpoint, 
you know, I grew up in a, there's my mom working beneath us in the garage. Um, (laughs) from that spiritual standpoint, I just had to sit with who I saw God to be. And for a long time, I did not approach God in prayer. In fact, it's only been seven years since I really started praying and I've been a Christian since I was five. So it's been 22 years or so. Um, but I realized I didn't see God as approachable because Mm -hmm. the God who was presented to me in sermons and youth group and leadership retreats for middle school and high school group, all these things, it was a God who was legalistic. He wasn't warm. Um, I didn't feel like I could receive him in the affection and the just emotional support I needed. Mm. Um, and I think that really for a while up until when I, when I really confessed to God that I didn't believe he would show up for me. Um, I think for a long time, it was just like, well, God's just there. Like he's the authoritarian. He, you know, tells me what to do and that's that. And I don't want to do it. I don't want to be bossed around. I want to be me and rebel if I feel like it. And, and these things that are normal when we're told what to do and it's against what we want. Um, so I really had to soften my heart to receive the real God, the God that loves me, um, without condition, the God who, um, you know, really doesn't let me stay the same. In fact, never lets me stay the same, that he's constantly showing me, I want you to be better and not in a shame way of you're not good enough. Just, I want you to see how much more I have for you. Mm -hmm. How I wrote this whole story and you're a part of it. And thinking even just like, I was such an English nerd growing up as a kid. Like I loved (laughs) reading and thinking about even character development, but Mm -hmm. we fight that so hard because I think at least for me and my experience, safety and security meant that my habits stayed consistent, Mm. that it was disciplined. (sighs) Like safety and security were the same thing as being comfortable or being comforted. Yeah. Or having those habits in place where my schedule looked the same and how I did things Mm. were the same. And so even now being almost 27, I had to put myself through my own little test of sorts and, and start changing my schedule up to see how I mentally responded to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and just seeing that and, and the ways I've been able to just welcome the help of God in far more, <coughs> oh, excuse me, effective ways um, that have really allowed for physical, emotional, and spiritual growth to take place because it's not about me anymore. It's about what God wants to do through me and me and all for his glory. It's not about the competition I mentioned earlier. It's not about, you know, fighting to prove that I'm right or whatever that looks like. Safety is that I'm ready for whatever God has, not because I'm ready in my own human condition, but because God is with me and that's mm-hmm. the whole game. Yeah. It sounds to me like God changed your blueprint for relating to him. Like the way, one of the ways I think about emotional safety and I love it. I think you described it so perfectly is the degree to which we experience attunement in relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as we experience attunement or misattunement, then this creates kind of like a pattern or a blueprint for love and relationships that we take and we stamp onto future relationships. And that's kind of the way attachment styles work. Mm -hmm. And 
So if we experience chronic misattunement or uh, the, I guess, less nerdy definition of that would be attunement is the idea that, you know, I ask for what I need or there is something that I need. Yeah. And if someone meets my emotional need, whether that was a hug or a soft response or gentle affirmation, or maybe it's just a snack if I'm a really little kid, <laughs> but if they meet what I need, then I know, oh, I can trust them. Yeah. Like I was vulnerable. I had a need. They could have rejected me. They could have told me it was weak. They could have responded harshly, but yeah. they met me where I was at. And I know that I can trust them. And then I feel comforted. And yeah. the, the more and more that happens, the more and more we build trust in relationships, but vice versa, misattunement, let's say I'm crying with a parent and they shut me down or tell me to stop crying. Or, um, I ask for something that I need and someone tells me like, well, why haven't you just got over it by now? Like, it doesn't make any sense or like toughen up case. Yeah. That causes like some loss and safety in relationships. And then I start behaving in other ways because I still want love. I still want yeah. acceptance. And I learned that the only way I can get that love and acceptance is if I morph to what maybe the other person needs in the relationship. So I become less needy. I stop being honest about what I might want. I, maybe I don't ask for help anymore. Maybe I don't share my honest thoughts and opinions anymore because I'm afraid that won't be accepted. That's going to be perceived as too much. Um, and then that blueprint of love that gets created, we take into our relationship with God. And like you said, when we take that into our relationship with God, maybe because, you know, with our parents or with our friends or with a grandparent, we learned, all right, I can't ask for help or I must be perfect to receive love mm -hmm. or um, I can't be vulnerable or that's going to be exploited. Yeah. And we take all of those rules of love, that blueprint of love, and we put it onto God. And sometimes that deeply impacts uh, how much of ourselves we share with God. Mm -hmm. um, and so you just gave us a beautiful example of what it's like in your own life to kind of like mm -hmm. deconstruct that blueprint of love that you had and allow God to create a new way of experiencing love in your relationship with him. And it sounds like it was just transformational for you. Very much so. And just even thinking of, you know, when we read the scripture, when we talk to other people, when we hear sermons, it's this big, almighty, powerful God. And yet in the scriptures, it also says your gentleness has made me great. Mm. So a God who is so powerful and created all of creation can calm a storm. He can do that with gentleness. And it speaks mm -hmm. to just, you know, I think of like a big Papa bear, like burly guy. And, and then you see a soft side when he starts having kids of like, Oh, there's a mm -hmm. gentleness to him or even the people in his circle who know, yeah, you know, he's, he's tough, he's powerful, but he's also gentle. And so I think when I, when I really experienced that God, the authentic one who could yell if he wanted to, but chose to meet me and what I needed in those different mm -hmm. seasons, with gentleness and with grace and with mercy of Stephanie, I love you. Like, I want the best for you. I want you to approach me. At one point I was praying and he just gave me this word. I've missed your attention. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, wow, God cares so deeply about me in the midst of millions of believers to say, I missed your attention. Mm -hmm. I noticed when it wasn't there and really praying deeply about understanding even the Trinity and God as father and Jesus as the son and the Holy spirit. And I started praying last year. I said, Lord, I grew up in church. I went to Easter service every year. 
I should know Jesus. And I don't like, I have kind of this example of how I see God when I'm praying. It's like either in the midnight hour in like a dark kitchen and I'm going into the kitchen for a midnight snack and he's there, but I also see God on the throne and there's light because that's what he brings to dark situations and, and just my confusion within humanity. And I feel the, the Holy spirit consistently, but then what about the one who gave me access to both of them in the first place? How is it that, you know, I've gone to church so long and yet Jesus felt unknown to me. So I started praying about that and I was like, Lord, just give me the discernment to see Jesus. And then I was like, why don't I talk to Jesus? Because mm. that's important too. Of like, Jesus, would you teach me how to pray to you? Jesus, would you show me who you are? Mm. And January of 2020, I was praying and um, I just received this image and it was the father, the son and the Holy spirit. And Jesus was on the cross and then the father and the spirit disappeared and who was left was Jesus. And he said, Mm. seek and know my face Mm. and started praying on that and praying. And, and around end of last year, beginning of this one, I just started receiving more of those identifiers of who Jesus is, not only to me, but the rest of the world. And he is the savior. He um, is the one who comes to clean, came to clean us up and to provide a better way and a better covenant and, and just a better word for us than brokenness. Um, and to give us that word of freedom. And recently, um, I was praying and, and it was the Jesus who came before me was not the whitewashed Jesus of, you know, uh, American culture. He wasn't rising up, transcending to heaven in a white robe and light all around him. Like as often communicated, it was the Jesus of the cross. It was the Jesus who had a crown of thorns that was digging into his flesh, causing pain and bleeding. It was the Jesus who was sweating and just caked in dirt because he had to bring his own cross up a mountain. That's the Jesus who presents himself to me. And it's, in some ways it used to be sad to think about Jesus in that context, but now it's freedom and it's testimony and it's miracle. And just the idea that this man would be sent by God to speak freedom to the, what I thought was unsafe, um, to situations for people that truly have been physically, emotionally, spiritually unsafe. This Jesus who, um, just really wanted to conquer sin so that we wouldn't have death any longer. Um, and so I think it's just been this, this beautiful thing to learn the security and safety that comes from intimacy and serving and community, not only within the Christian body, but also to people who aren't believers mm-hmm. who have experienced, um, just deep pain and offense from believers who were really called to be consecrated and set apart and show that love within the scripture and didn't. Mm. And so maybe let's move into that a little bit of how can people who either have left the church are considering leaving the church or who never took part in it because of how Christians really have not embodied in the fullness who 
God wants us to be that, that we are those set apart people and that goodness is not inherently Christian or, (laughs) or God, like, how do we do better as believers, as practitioners for those tuning in who are within um, just the psychological realm of things and sociology and social work? Um, How are some ways that we can not undo history, but begin mending it? So you're talking about the process of building trust again, not just between individuals, but Mm -hmm. in communities where there might be a distrust of the church in general at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm just Um, really unpacking some heavy (laughs) (laughs) questions, but yeah, let's, let's unpack that a bit. Oh, it's a big, big question. And it's so good. And I think maybe before like I dive into it, I feel impressed on my heart to just like take a moment to honor the grieving that mm-hmm. I can imagine so yeah. many people of faith have experienced around what has happened in evangelical church culture, if you're familiar with that, um, in the past 10 to 15 years, mm-hmm. because we've, we've witnessed so much. We've witnessed pain and leaders falling and injustice and the uncovering of dark corners of communities of faith that have harmed people or marginalized people. Um, and it's, it's not the heart of Jesus and it's not the heartbeat of the church. Um, and it is not what was intended for the kingdom of God yet. Some of these things have happened. Um, and, and for those who are listening and who are at the place of not feeling trust of feeling in pain or, or maybe even outrage, mm-hmm. um, I, I just want to say to you, I'm, I'm so deeply sorry for the pain that you've experienced. Um, and my heart grieves with you um, and feels outraged with you. And I, I, I wonder if that's a part of the loss and the grieving process that all of us will experience as we move from noting the injustices to building something different. Yeah. Um, I think the first part is it's, it's noting the injustices so that there can be accountability that is practiced. Mm-hmm. And so true reconciliation can happen and, and we can make changes that lead to healing and growth. Um, but, but with that accountability and naming of the injustices, there's such a sense of grief and loss. And whether that be like the deep sadness, sometimes the denial, the anger and the outrage that comes with it, mm-hmm. all of those emotions are understandable. And from a theological perspective, I believe that like the God of the world who created the universe and Jesus, like Jesus grieves with us. Mm. Jesus feels angry at the things that like harm the people that he loves. Um, And that is something that when we think about rebuilding trust or practicing accountability as community of believers, that's one of the places that has brought me comfort. And it's been a, a helpful starting place for me to know that like, I'm not alone in what I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus feels those things with me and Jesus wants something different for the community of Christ, for what Jesus calls like the beloved community, the kingdom of God, Jesus wants something different for us, even more than any of us possibly could. Um, and so starting from that place of knowing, like, I'm not alone. Jesus feels this deeply too. um, restoration and healing are possible. We can head a different direction, mm-hmm. um, feeling that validation in my own relationship with God. has been a helpful starting place for me, but kind of moving past that, um, into the idea of like, how do we, we, we rebuild trust. Mm. The first thing that came to mind for me, and I'm going to quote a researcher that I think we both enjoy quite a bit, Brene Brown. Yes. Um, you know what, 
I, I don't think this is like a fully like, of course, it's going to take more than just this. But for the yeah. sake of time, I actually think her braving acronym is a really good framework mm. for thinking about like building trust, whether it's just between me and one other person or yeah. what an organization as a whole has to do to rebuild trust with the community so that people can know, hey, when I come into a church and ask for help, it's a safe space for me. And yeah. I can trust and know that's going to be the case. And so when I think about us as a community of believers, what might we do to start practicing trust with our communities, rebuilding trust? Mm -hmm. I think about this braving acronym and uh, it stands for the, the B stands for boundaries. And it's the idea of like just setting clear expectations. And I think the church as a whole can do that. We can set clear expectations about like, what's our vision? What's our mission? What's our heart? Mm -hmm. And then be consistent in fulfilling those expectations in our community. And the more often we do that, the deeper trust occurs there. I think about a church that I knew during the COVID time um, that they said one of the expectations of their community was um, we want to meet the needs of our particular city. Mm. And during COVID, the city needed outdoor dining spaces. Yeah. During COVID, the church built all of these outdoor dining spaces. Mm. And at the end, there were government officials coming to them, thanking them, saying like, we are so grateful for your participation here. We see the value you add to, your, to our city. Thank you for loving us. And in the past, there'd been no trust between the government officials in this church. Mm. And because this church had followed through with, their ex, with the clear expectation they'd set, mm. um, they'd built trust by living out their vision. And I think that's just one form of boundaries. Mm. Um, but there's also the, the small examples of boundaries within the church community as well, between mm. our members, respecting one another's boundaries, clearly setting boundaries and that building trust. Mm. And then you have the next part of the acronym that's reliability. And I think that goes along with boundaries really nicely, because if we're going to set clear expectations, if we're going to set vision or an expectation about what it means to be a community of Jesus, then reliability is just actually following through with doing what we say we were going to do. It's promise keeping. Um, and that sounds very close to the heart of God in my mind. I think when I think about the ultimate promise keeper, like that, that's God, like God is the ultimate promise keeper. Um, and that's one way that I believe we can image God as the church and build trust. Like, how are we keeping promises to one another within the church community? How do we keep promises to our community? Uh, how do we follow through on our commitments? And we can do this as an individual, but we can also do this as organizations. Yeah. Um, and then the next part of the acronym, B-R-A, A, accountability. And I think that's kind of where we started with that, like acknowledging the grief that comes from some of the injustices that have happened. It's not just acknowledging and validating, but uh, Brene Brown talks about accountability as acknowledging the pain, genuinely apologizing, and then doing your best to make amends whatever that looks like. Um, so it's, it's an acknowledgement of the wrong, true, true remorse, and then doing your best to make a U-turn, using your actions to make amends. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not just our words, it's our words, our actions, and our heart together that create this idea of accountability because we're not perfect. And sometimes accountability can go a long way in restoring and reconciling. From a theological perspective, accountability looks a lot like repentance. Mm, yeah. um, and accountability with two people looks a lot like re repentance and forgiveness. Mm. Um, and so we have B R A. The next one is V and V stands for vault. And mm. that's just the idea of confidentiality. Um, yeah. and, um, 
or from a theological perspective, not gossiping. Yeah. And that, that really rebuilds a lot of trust. When we think about building trust with people who are not a part of the church, just building those friendships, being mindful of the people that we talk about, the way that we talk about them, Mm -hmm. Um, being someone that people know when they come to us and share something they don't want to be shared with others that we're locked down like a vault, literally, Mm -hmm. they know they can trust us. And the more and more often they share, and we don't share those things with other people, that trust increases, it builds. Mm -hmm. Um, I stands for integrity. Um, This is more of an abstract idea. But when I think about the ways this is lived out with individuals, but also with like the church or faith community as a whole, Mm -hmm. I think about it as doing our best to consistently make choices that are aligned with our values. Um, And for a community of faith, what a beautiful way to show Jesus to the world, because largely our our core values are going to be the same. Mm -hmm. Um, They're going to be from that place of, of deep love, of compassion, of justice, of grace, of reconciliation, Um, and doing our best to make decisions and commitments with our lives in every sphere of our lives Mm. that are deeply anchored in those values that are rooted in the kingdom of God, that are representative of the love of Jesus to the world. Um, And I think that's one way that as individuals, but also as the church, we start building trust with people and creating more bridges for connection. Mm-hmm. Um, when people start to know, like, I don't know if you've ever had a friend who was just consistently living out their values in every space. So it got to the point where like, if you knew they were going into another situation, you could just kind of assume like, I know who they are. That person's going to go have a hard conversation with them and it's going to go well. They're going to be treated with kindness and compassion because that's just the type of person they are. Mm-hmm. I've seen them in hard situations. I've seen them in loss. I've seen them in joy. And every time they choose to act with compassion, kindness, and understanding, or they choose to act with patience. And because I've seen them live into their values over and over again, mm. now I can trust that in future situations, that's just probably who they're going to be most of the time. Yeah. Wouldn't it be a beautiful thing if eventually the communities around our churches at large expected that of the church? Mm. Whenever there was a disaster, if whenever there was an injustice, if whenever there was pain, the average person in our community just said, oh, the church is going to be loving. They're going to be present. They're going to be available and safe because that's just who they are. Yeah. Um, so that's the idea of integrity. And then the last couple pieces of the acronym are non-judgment and generosity. And the non-judgment doesn't mean that we never make decisions <laughs> or it doesn't mean that, you know, we never give our honest opinion. Um, the heart behind that and the acronym is the idea that we allow people to share what they need with openness and validation. Yeah. So it's just the idea that I can ask for what I need and you can ask for what you need mm-hmm. and we can meet each other with compassion. doesn't mean we never make judgments or we never um, make decisions about things. It just means people can share what they need. They can be vulnerable and feel safe and feel embraced for who they are and where they're at mm. um, as a starting point for wherever they want to go. Yeah. And then the last piece is generosity. And that's just giving people the benefit of a doubt. Mm. Um, and I think the one, if I was going to transfer that to like maybe a church community, I think about that as uh, maybe showing people grace. Yeah. So as a church community or as individuals, if somebody else is having a hard time, sure, we could come down on them. Sure, we could be pissed off. Um, we could jump to the worst possible conclusion. Because sometimes that's what we do to keep our own self safe. I know I've done that before. I'm like, oh, I want to steer clear of them. Yeah. (laughs) 
Um, but in some cases, when appropriate, giving people the benefit of a doubt, showing them grace and meeting them with kindness and compassion. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's so many other ways that we can rebuild trust as individuals and, and as the church, but I really like Brene Brown's braving acronym um, as yeah. kind of like a, a guiding formula. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned earlier, which was a good point to hit on in terms of safety and, and, and trust building as well as faith deconstruction. Mm-hmm. And how do we process that in a way where we deconstruct the things that are human uh, versus the things that are holy and, and, and God's character? And how do we deconstruct them in a way where we don't leave it in utter deconstruction of, all right, well, now it's just destruction because I've torn apart all these pieces mm. and it's just on the floor before me and I'm overwhelmed. How do we go from that healthy version of deconstruction that then leads to a reconstruction? Mm. That's such That's a good that. question. <laughs> yeah, it's such a good question. Uh, I will give you my thoughts on it. And I do not think that this is a fully formed answer. It's maybe just a starting point for a reflection for all of us because deconstruction is so immense. And I don't know if there's, there's one question that's going to answer every scenario. It's just too nuanced because it's it's Mm -hmm. each person and their individual experiences. And it's uh, a different snowflake for each person. It's kind of the way that I think about it. But the story that comes to mind for me when I think about deconstruction and the difference between tearing it all down and burning it to the ground versus like uh, tearing it down to rebuild something more beautiful. Mm. Um, I think about a story and the story is something that a professor told me a long time ago. He was talking about the difference of being upset with the church, maybe rightfully so, being outraged and kind of running away from God and the church completely or tearing it all down versus participating with God and creating something new. And he told this story about like uh, a kid and their parents, and it really resonated with me. So in this scenario, there's like a seven-year-old boy and seven-year-old boy is talking with his parents and his parents are encouraging him to like, you know, go out and make friends. And the kid's talking about how he's like so nervous and he's afraid he's going to be rejected. And he doesn't want to go out and make friends. And his parents just encourage him. They're like, go on, go on and make friends. Like it's going to like, sometimes we have to do the brave thing. And so it's like, okay, I'm going to go. I trusted my parents. I'm going to go make friends. And so the kid like, is like seven years old. He like walks out the door, walks to the park and like goes to introduce himself to some new friends, being super brave. Cause we all know how scary that is. Even as adults making new yeah. friends, the fear <laughs> of rejection is yeah. painful. Uh-huh. Um, and he, he walks out there and then has this tragic experience of he's treated unfairly. And these kids make fun of them. They're unkind, they're bullying. And he burst into tears and runs back to his, to his house. And there's two different ways that the story goes. Mm-hmm. The first way that this story goes is he runs back into the house. He runs straight past his parents, won't even look at them, runs up the stairs, runs in his room, slams the door, locks the door, puts a big chair by the door so his parents can't get in. And he's crying. And his parents go run up to the outside of the door, try to get him to open because they want to comfort him. They want to talk to him. They want to work it out together so that you know they can they can love him and support him and help him learn and grow. 
And he says, I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. Your advice was the worst. It hurt me. Um, I never want to see you again. And he cries and he's sitting on his bed and he doesn't let his parents in. And that experience of pain in the system of his family, rather than processing it with his family and allowing them to help him grow or allowing them to practice accountability um, or allowing them to grow and learn together to still be in connection while he was in pain. It wasn't allowed. The pain caused him to isolate and be all alone rather than to have any other perspective to help him to rebuild and learn. Now, the story goes a second way. The second way this story could go is the child is still hurt, runs back into the house, doesn't look at the parents at first because he's just so upset, is crying, runs up the stairs, slams the door, is crying on the bed, and mom and dad come and knock on the door. And this time, instead of, you know, blocking the door with the chairs and the pillows saying like, no, I'm never going to talk to you again. Like you've broken my trust forever. I hate you. Um, He goes and opens the door and actually still says to his parents, like, I hate you. I'm so sad. But does that as he's hugging his parents Mm. and gives them the chance to love him in his pain, to love him in his confusion and disillusionment and Mm. gives them the chance to help him understand what went wrong. Yeah. Gives them the chance to learn through the pain and to learn and not have to be alone. Yeah. And that's a long story for one of the ways that I think about deconstruction. I think so often deconstruction is a necessary process. It changed my life, but so often it can happen because it's been triggered by pain. Yeah. And then the pain causes us to run away from everyone and everything. So we're in this space all alone. Mm. And when we're all alone, we lose access to so much wisdom from other people. Yeah. And we lose access to their love. Yeah. Um, and deconstruction can be so painful and disorienting. What I would want for anyone that I care about is I would want them to have access to other people. I also want them to have access to love because yeah. it's a hard process. We need that love, compassion, and support mm-hmm. as we start getting down to like, what are my values? What is my theology? How do I want to live out my faith in the world? What are the injustices that occurred that I'm going to say no more? And like, where are the places I'm processing loss and I'm grieving? Yeah, I would want that to be in a community where we're loved and supported. Mm. Um, so although that might not always be the church community we were once in, maybe it can be in another community. Maybe it could be a safe friend or a mentor. Maybe it could be a support group that you join. Um, so that as we are all sometimes that child, that child who feels like, you know, we've been wounded by our family. Mm. We've been wounded by the place we thought was safe. We are disillusioned by the way that people have behaved and we want something different. Maybe we can start taking apart all of those ideas, but still being connected to other people and still being connected to our heavenly father, to God. Mm. So that's, I don't know if that like answers your question. That's more theoretical than it is practical, but theoretically that's the way that I think about it. Yeah, no, for sure. I was thinking of it in two different ways. I think for me, it's funny, my uncle, he, um, he went to Fuller as well. And, and, um, we were talking about just the theology behind kind of pain and suffering, but also Mm. spiritual warfare and, um, how to use God's light. And 
and he asked me, he said, because I had, I'd mentioned just a testimony of God and, and, and faith. And he asked, you know, you use the word unsafe. He said, when I looked at you, you had community and you seemed happy. And a lot of you seemed, you seemed because I think in my faith deconstruction, I felt like I had to preserve my sense of being the strong friend and the secure one. And Mm -hmm. these things that are positive attributions, but also can shift with time and season and hardship and even good things and success too. And, and I was thinking back, I started, um, I started really deconstructing my faith back in uh, the end of 2017, Um, right before I went to Detroit, I said, Lord, I need to deconstruct everything I've learned. I don't think this is you. I don't think, um, this is the truest, most authentic God. This is not in my mind who Jesus is, who the Holy spirit is, what faith community looks like. And uh, we were talking a little bit as well of, I ran from the very thing God has called me to, which is community, because Mm -hmm. being the strong friend, being the strong woman, being the strong, whatever that identity was, was safer for me than being the vulnerable, authentic one. That was like, actually, I feel super broken right now. I'm very confused. I feel like a mess. And I read this beautiful uh, post the other day and I was talking about I would rather tell people about how much of a mess I was and how God changed and healed and transformed me than pretend that I had it all together. Mm. And I was thinking about that. And I thought about how real that is that now that I am diving into what it looks like to build community um, within my profession, um, to build community within my personal life, to create community within my community, mm-hmm. um, and what that really looks like. And I had to go through that hard deconstruction of realizing how resistant I was because I thought that God was just trying to control me, not to really love me into this beautiful, beautiful narrative he had created where I got to be a character in it. Mm-hmm. And so I think for me, as I went along, it was like, God was just chopping down like these walls and it just, he went brick by brick because I think mm-hmm. that's just how intentional God is about not just bulldozing everything out. He's like, this brick came from this memory and this experience, this brick brick came from that pain and that disappointment And really being able to see, okay, I built up this false sense of security, this false sense of identity, um, this false sense of who I saw God to be, um, and really looking at that. And when it did come down to it, it was like, oh, wow, I have a whole pile of bricks. Like, this is a mess. God, what did I do with this? And realizing, yes, it was a mess. But now I had God and an openness and a receptivity to be changed and transformed. And I think I have just a few friends in mind who are really in the midst of that, of their sense of longing for God has shifted and mm-hmm. um, a lot of anger that is displaced onto God instead of the people who, who really hurt them. And I just want to encourage everyone listening, like don't stop at the messy part. Like the messy part is just, it's a really beautiful 
space to be vulnerable Mm -hmm. of even crying out and telling God, this is what I want for my life. Does that line up with what your will is Mm -hmm. and really asking God, because he's going to paint an even better picture than you thought, but he's not going to give you the whole painting. He's going to give you pieces by pieces so that in my, at least how I see it, like by the time I get to the gates of heaven and I get to look Jesus eye to eye and God eye to eye and feel just the spirit all around us, it's going to make sense because I'm going to have the picture of what he was painting the whole time, but you can't stop at the part where all your supplies is laid Mm -hmm. out and there's nothing on the canvas. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, it's, I've now gotten to a space where it's almost like in scripture where it's talking about going from milk to solid food of, okay, I've gone through the immaturity of needing milk. Now it's time to build my tolerance for the solids Mm -hmm. and what that looks like to create a legacy of being able to be in the faith and be confused, but also seek out community and wise Mm -hmm. counsel to help me through that confusion. Mm -hmm. So I think for those of you listening, that's another thing too, is it's okay to be confused, but Mm -hmm. I also believe that confusion is one of Satan's favorite tools to keep us divided and isolated and alone. Um, but God is not a God of confusion. He is very clear. He loves to speak to you through prayer, but also his word. It's our guide map. Um, and so even in faith deconstruction in realizing my own immature and also broken, um, just lenses that I had. And even I was thinking about different garments we wear that are not seasonal. It's like me being in summer in Sacramento. It's, it's so hot. It's, 116 degrees sometimes. (laughs) And for me to wear a down parka and a long sleeve and a, you know, jeans and boots and and then the whole winter, that wouldn't make sense. And so same with my lenses, if it's, you know, super dark out and I put on these sunglasses that block out light, of course, it's going to be confusing. Of course, it's going to be like, okay, what am I doing? (laughs) Like, where am I going? I can't see anything, but those are those pivotal moments where we get to ask God to just be our guide, to make sure we don't slip and fall. And even if we do to ask us, ask him to just pull us back up onto our feet. And I think even just back to the overarching conversation on safety, it's like when you realize that he's a fortress all around you, that you realize that he's the leader of the battle and the army there's a greater sense of security knowing that God has you, that he's got you covered, that it's him and the Holy spirit and Jesus and angels. God literally commands angels concerning us for our keeping that we would stomp on not only Satan, but the head of a lion and a serpent all the same. We have authority. That also means we have someone really strong backing us and that's God. Um, so I think that's just my practical encouragement on that. Um, what would be just some practical takeaways and encouragement you could give the listeners before we wrap up? Good question. I think maybe a couple things come to mind for me. The first two are maybe just questions to ask yourself if you're in the process of deconstructing. Yeah. And that would be, uh, who are you deconstructing with? And what tools are you using? Um, Because that community we talked about is so important. If you could deconstruct with other people of faith, um, 
it's, it will change the way that you go on that journey, which will be painful and hard, um, but can be very meaningful to share that with others. And then you also have their wisdom to pull, to pull from because um, the community of faith gets to practice accountability together. And then also most importantly, deconstructing with God. God can handle the tears, the anger, the outrage. Um, we can be that kid kind of hitting God's chest, crying. Yeah. Um, and so invite God into that space, wherever you may be, God loves you exactly where you're at. Mm. Um, and then beyond the, who's, who's, who's doing this deconstructing with you? What tools are you using? Um, I really like, there's an author named John Mark Comer, and he talks about the ultimate model for deconstruction being Jesus mm -hmm. and how Jesus actually sets an example for deconstruction for each of us. Cause the tool that Jesus used was the word of God. Mm -hmm. Jesus used scripture to yeah. deconstruct the Pharisees. Oh, sorry. This is my dog <laughs> who's now barking at us. Gizmo, it's okay. It's just the mailman. <laughs> it's fine. We're okay. We're Our safe, buddy. <laughs> yeah. You know, Gizmo is just trying to keep me safe over here. Yes. Um, that was, that was great for the conversation. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, so uh, getting back on track. Um, yeah. Jesus used scripture to deconstruct the yeah. culture. Jesus used scripture to deconstruct mm. church power. Yeah. Um, and what a beautiful tool that is to use the word of God, to use that truth, to allow those values to anchor us because mm. we need something to anchor us to be yeah. the tool that we use to deconstruct or we right. will be very confused. Mm -hmm. um, so who are you deconstructing with? What tools are you using? Those would be my two practical questions. Yeah. Um, and then I think my, my third practical piece of advice might be to find a verse that brings you comfort in moments where you're feeling unsafe. Yeah. This will not be a fix all, like it's not a magic bullet. Mm -hmm. um, however, it can allow us to remind ourselves of the truth of who God is and what God feels towards us. Yeah. When maybe we're thinking and we're feeling that we're all alone. Right. Um, it can be an anchor to relationship with God, a way that we remind ourselves whose we are and how mm -hmm. God feels towards us. Yeah. Um, I think about, um, for me, one of the verses that brings me great comfort is really the whole chapter of Psalm 139 yeah. of like God knowing me, God seeing me, God knitting me together in my mother's womb. And that being like, for me, that being the verse that I kind of go back to be like, God sees me, God knows me, God loves me, God's with me. Yeah. And then the end of that chapter is like that invitation to God to like search my heart further, know yeah. me more, help me learn, teach me your ways, help me to grow. Yeah. Um, and so that's the verse I go back to that like angers me, helps me feel safe, seen, mm -hmm. and gives me that security that we talked about of knowing when I ask God for help, God will be here. Yeah. Um, I might not get exactly what I want in my prayer, but I am for certain that anytime I go to God with vulnerability, God will meet me there. And God knows me and sees me better than anyone else and provides all the compassion. Yeah. Um, so finding a verse that connects with you, I think, yeah, that would be my, my last practical tip. But, uh, apart from that, um, as a one day licensed professional, um, I also want to note that, you know, the topics we've talked about are heavy and they might've brought up some really intense 
um, emotional content for you. And if you're noticing that and you notice that like, okay, when I talk with friends, I just don't quite get the support I need yet. Or when I'm trying on my own, I'm having a hard time working through these things on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're experiencing like consistent, either difficult emotions or thoughts that are impacting your life at school or at home or, or with your friends. Um, this might be a good time to reach out and get the support of a therapist or a counselor as well. And I thought that would be, I guess, my last practical tip. Sometimes these conversations bring up these like red flashing lights that let us know, wait, something's not okay. Like I've been wounded. I'm hurting. I'm suffering. Mm-hmm. And, and it's okay to ask for help. Yeah. I know I've asked for help and I've, I've benefited yeah. so greatly um, from the wisdom that um, therapists have shared with me from the people who I've got to practice vulnerability with and experience um, that validation and that care. So maybe you're, you're a person today that the first step is just asking for help. That's a great starting place. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for those. That is so, so good. Would you just close us out in prayer after such a, such a good conversation? Absolutely. And, and thank you for having me. It's, it's a really an honor to share this space with you, Stephanie. Privilege to have you. Yeah. Dear Jesus, I just, I thank you for this conversation, for my sweet friend, Stephanie, for anybody who's listening, God. Um, and I, I thank you for the space where we, we get to talk about your heart uh, for loving people, your heart that people would feel safe, restored, healed, your heart for the goodness of the Christian community and the kingdom of God um, in this world. Um, God, I pray that for anyone right now who is in a space where they've lost a sense of safety, God, would you provide them with a sense of comfort? Mm -hmm. Would you remind them how safe you are, how loving you are? God, I, I pray that you would be Emmanuel to each person who's listening right now, whether we're in a time of joy, of sadness, of grieving, or of angst. God, I pray that each one of us experiences you as Emmanuel, the God who is with us, yes. um, the God who sees us, and the God who loves us. Um, so God, uh, be with us, go before us, and I pray that you give everyone the sense that you are upholding them with your righteous right hand. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. Well, thank you again. So those of you listening, thank you for taking the time to just invest in yourself and, and to be a part of these important conversations that bring honor and glory and praise to God. So thank you. It has been a wonderful first season and we cannot wait to have you back for the next. Bye y'all.